Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. So far in July alone, three Chicago police officers have died by suicide. That makes 20 officers since 2018. The Chicago Police Department has long struggled with officer suicide. According to a 2017 U.S. Justice Department report, the suicide rate within CPD is 60% higher than the nationwide average for officers. Now, advocates are calling on the city to create a more comprehensive strategy to address this mental health crisis within the department. Alexa James is one of them. She is the executive director of NAMI Chicago, the Chicago chapter of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And she joins us now. Alexa, you were previously a mental health advisor for the Chicago Police Department. What have you observed about the work environment that could affect an officer's mental health? Well, I'll say a few things. One is the work environment was fascinating to me because you are seeing a lot of stress, uh, just a very stressful environment generally, right? I mean, that's the first responder community. I was there during the beginning of COVID, et cetera. But you also see like a hunger for people to figure out how to make themselves feel better. I mean, there really was very different than I'd seen before. Um, in my earlier work with the police department. I think that we focus a lot on the stress leading to suicide in the department, um, but what we need to focus on is the chronic stress, that this is not just about work, right? This is about what we're walking into work with, that there is chronic stress that interferes with police work in deeper ways. And what I saw was lack of access to feeling seen or heard. Um, at that point, you know, people didn't weren't able to work out in their gyms, right, because of the precautions around uh, uh, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't have access to that. Um, they felt like they weren't getting enough break between work um, and they were missing connection to their families because of the chronic um, and persistent um, time that they were giving to the job. So you mentioned it's not just about work, but are these officers being overworked? You know, that that's what I'm hearing, right? So at NAMI Chicago, our role is to lift up the voices of people living the experience. And so what we are hearing chronically is I'm 31 days straight, I'm 20 days straight, you know, I'm not getting to see, to connect with my children or my family. That's what we're hearing. Um, and, and I think we also have to appreciate this. I mean, I think not everybody's work life is the same, but we all are just full generally, and um, adding more on makes us feel incredibly overwhelmed and hopeless. And hopelessness is really scary. And we're focused a lot on the suicide. And while I really appreciate that, um, we need to focus generally on those who are continuing to get up and go every day and feeling really empty and low and hopeless. Um, mm-hmm. Because we have, we have recommendations. We have thoughts about how we can rectify this. And we're hearing it from the boots on the ground. And that's where the solution should be coming from. You know, as a mental health professional, I wonder how you feel about that. You know, that it sometimes might seem like once we get to the ultimate, to the extreme, that's when an issue rises to the top, right? As you said, yes. we need to focus on the day-to-day. Police officers are witnessing traumatic things every day on the job sometimes even on a regular basis. So just talk more about the effects that this all can have on an officer. Sure, sure. I mean, it's it's just, it's science, it's biological. The effects of stress make learning, 
very challenging, right? So here we are like trying to do a lot of training and hoping that people retain information. It's incredibly challenging. Memory, our brain cells can deteriorate and make us more sensitive to stress. So something may that have not impacted us um, the same way a year ago is now like the biggest deal or the most complicated or leaves us feeling dread. Um, and it's generational. So these genes are adapting. And so we're seeing this uh, affect families. Um, the anxiety really weakens the connections in our brain too. And anxiety and stress and chronic stress and trauma make us feel disconnected from our relationships, which is deeply disruptive to our wellness. You know, mm -hmm. I hear a lot and I heard some of the reporting from BEZ even yesterday around we are responding to officer suicides. The superintendent is talking about more clinicians. That's awesome. That is not going to, that is piece of the puzzle. And we need to think about what are the basic needs that are not being met in and out of organization that can reduce this stress and improve overall health functioning. Um, that is really deeply um, impacted. And let's remember too, to people listening, that informed decision-making comes from a restful health brain. And that's important for all of us as Chicagoans that are really looking to the police to keep us safe and responsibly police. So you, you were brought on, Alexa, by the department. This was back in September 2020, after the death of uh, Deputy Police Chief Dion Boyd. What caused you to ultimately step down from your, your position as their uh, senior advisor on wellness? You know, I was a, like, um, basically pro bono consultant. So I didn't have, there's, you know, as any bureaucracy, there's a lot of red tape. I submitted my strategic plan to the superintendent, to the mayor. They were incredibly enthusiastic about it. Um, and started uh, building a project planned around it with some other folks that were working on the consent decree. There was very little I could do then to continue to like push it through, right, as not an employee. And I needed to get back to my team at NAMI Chicago and um, support them. Um, and I do think that there was some um, challenges around like how much of an investment I thought the culture of wellness should take um, and what, what I was able to actually accomplish in that space. You've called it inhumane for the department to cancel some days off during the summer. Why? That, that's a strong word. I'm calling it inhumane to not acknowledge the fact that this is really hard and people are really hurting and we need to do something different. This is the biggest mental health crisis I have ever seen in my profession. I don't see it getting any better. We need to, as organizational leaders, as I have, as many of my colleagues in the nonprofit and government space have done, be innovative about how we continue to serve, how we continue to show up every day as a 24-hour organization, and maintain um, the health and wellness of our employees as a priority. When that doesn't feel like we are prioritizing that, it feels wrong to me. And it feels um, wrong to the people that it's hurting and the mm. family members that are living with the tragic outcomes of suicide and loss are reliving this frustration every time this happens again. And the last thing I just want to add, Sasha, is something that's really important for people to note. When a police officer dies um, by suicide or naturally, the responders to that death are their colleagues in the fire department, in the police department, the people doing the vet death investigation, the 91 call takers, these are their family. And mm -hmm. we need to make sure that we have given them time to grieve and space to grieve. That is the humanness that we need to see. You know, as the wellness advisor, did you raise 
this with, with Superintendent David Brown or Mayor Lightfoot and her staff? Sure. Yeah. I mean, like when I was there, it was when um, it was we talked about what was going on Memorial Day and the superintendent. And I had a really good conversation about, you know, what I was hearing from folks. Right. Which what I thought my role was to kind of share what I was hearing from the folks um, working the beat. Um, about transparency and wanting to know why, you know, why are they getting deployed? And he responded, he did a video, he thanked them, um, you know, he op was open to listening to me. I shared my same concerns with the mayor and she listened to, to that, um, like acknowledgement of exhaustion. Um, and Ella French was murdered and uh, there was a lot that was going on at that same moment and a lot of ca uh, capacity issues and bandwidth issues and grief and loss. So, um, you know, I'm not operations. I would never say that I could run a deployment strategy or the police department in that way. Um, but I was always honest about my feedback when I was there and moving on, uh, even when I left. Suicides, they typically spike between May and October. Why? Yeah, so it and it depends on what age group, you know, it's such a um, awful cycle. So what we know to be true is that um, a lot of folks are sitting in a very hopeless place a lot. And the energy, I mean, the energy that um, it takes to make the decision that I don't want to be in this pain anymore is exhausting. What we know to be true of any human is we feel more natural organic energy when the days are longer, when there's more sunlight, etc. And so we see that shift that there's just a natural energy. So we want to remind people that we know this pattern. And so we need to get in front of it. And we need to be more aggressive. And we need to remind people that this is a moment that there are resources that I work with people every single day who are survivors of suicidal thoughts, suicidal attempts, that we can help that their support. Um, and that's what I mean here about like, if we know that this is the, the, the culture of the world, this is what we're seeing. This is the trend, unfortunately. What do we all do as leaders to get in front of this and create a really strategic plan to avoid the most tragic outcomes of hopelessness? Now, if you or someone that you know is struggling with your mental health, the new national suicide hotline number is 988. That number is available 24-7 with service in English and Spanish. Alexa, NAMI still trains and consults with the Department on Mental Health for Officers. Can you tell us more about that partnership? I mean, I, I certainly hope we continue to get invited to the table. Um, you know, this is a really hot button issue and it's uh, very deep to the um, people that we serve here. Yes. So we train. I will be training today at the academy. We train officers in CIT. We consult around um, implementation of mental health de-escalation training. Um, and we've been asked with municipalities all over the country to kind of help them be thought partners in creating a culture of wellness within their departments. Um, but we also just answer the phone. I mean, I get a call a day at least from an officer who wants to consult with us on their own wellness or is connecting us to an individual and community who needs mental health resources through our helpline. Um, I actually just got a call from an officer last week that called to thank us because he said that the training saved the, the life of his wife. Um, who is really wow. struggling. So we are, um, we'll show up. Our vow is to show up and reflect what we're hearing from the officers. And we hope to be able to continue to do so. Does it concern you at all that many of these police officers are, are taking their lives using similar methods? Oh, yes. I mean, um, we are concerned um, globally around the fact that we are seeing um, firearms as a mean for suicide as a means for suicide. Um, 
it's deeply scary. It's deeply violent. It shows deep, um, just sadness and hopelessness. Um, and that's why NAMI Chicago is putting together, you know, a policy position around firearms. It's one of the many reasons. We also know that um, firearms lead to long-term grief and loss for community. Um, so yeah, it's incredibly uh, problematic and scary. And I don't know the answer when your job is to be able to have access to, and you have to have access to a firearm. I don't know um, how we mitigate this, but yes, we are seeing this as the consistent um, cause of death. So it's clear. Talk to us about what exact resources are available right now for officers who need help. Yeah, so um, great. So the actual, the, the professional counseling division at the police department is fabulous. And I really will be honest that I was always a bit skeptical because I feel like they're blamed for um, what's not happening. But there's no science that says more clinicians mean less suicide. Let's just be clear about that, right? The, the When I was in there, one of my greatest privileges was spending time with them. So they have 11 clinicians. They're hope, hoping to hire more and they've had the positions open. It's just been difficult to recruit. So I encourage people to apply for this incredible position to be able to support officers. Um, they also have a chaplain's unit for, you know, I think every faith-based represented in the police department, peer support program that's robust, that is nationally recognized, as well as substance use counselors who are themselves identified as living in recovery and support officers when they are also managing substance use disorders. But the professional counseling division is to support all uh, officers, their family members, and retired. So it's a pretty big lift. Um, so what, what we would say is that's a really strong program. Now let's move on to do people have enough time in between shifts? Are people hearing about what they need to hear about? Are they connected to other people outside the department, right? All of those things are part of the recommendations that we put in our strategic plan. Are these resources enough, in your opinion? Well, I mean, always more clinicians, right? I mean, always, in, in everywhere in the mental health field. Um, you know, there's education that they do. There's roll calls. There's outreach. We teach about this in CIT officer wellness, right? I think that if we're talking about resources, what we need to be talking about is really making sure that there's accountability, that there's a timeline, and that there are adequate resources connected to the programs that need to um, take place within the department to make sure that we have a comprehensive system of wellness. And a lot of this is communications and policies that should be transparent um, or um, even this real alignment between our purpose and uh, of our work, you know, getting people back to that place. I think a lot of police are confused about what they should be doing and it makes them feel unsteady. Right. So yeah, a lot of this isn't super tangible programmatic needs. And then lastly, you know, making sure that we get the buildings on the south side of Chicago and the north side of Chicago so officers can actually access their mental health resources. And, you know, certainly, obviously, they need a day off to be able to access those resources. What's the attitude toward mental health that you've seen among officers? Like, is, is there a stigma in actually seeking the help? You know, I've, in my, uh, over a decade working with the department, I've seen it totally change. You know, officers are really comfortable saying like, I'm in therapy. I mean, th they can't keep up with the demands if that tells you anything. There's a lot, a lot of people who are seeking services at the counseling center. I think that there's always going to be stigma. And I think it's more around self-stigma. Like I'm going to deal with this on my own. and I'm not going to just talk about it. And that's when it's really scary, right? Because those are the individuals that we talk to, the widows, where they're like, we didn't know, we, there was no signs. 
Like we have no idea, right? Because they just held mm-hmm. it in so, so, so tight. So that we need to break through. And I think that starts at the recruit level. How are we layering this concept of mental wellness all the way through? And I do think that there's this like um, fear. There's a lot of myth and misconceptions or truth. I, I'm not quite sure about should you be seeking services if that at all negatively impacts your ability to um, for, uh, be, be employed, right? Like, are you going to get stripped if you go to therapy? No. Are you going to lose your FYD card? No. But we need to continue to hammer down those myths um, so that people feel more open to seeking uh, therapy and other support services. There's a recent uh, press conference with Mayor Lightfoot, and uh, she said that the city's allocated $20 million in its budget to expand offerings for officers and their families. How do you want to see that money spent? Oh, I mean, that's really, I think, for the for the department to decide, frankly. They know how they should see that money spent. I think that it should be mm-hmm. sustainable. I think that we should be able to see. I think that it should be, we sh- um, should see in parallel that when we look at a public safety strategy, that in parallel, what is the officer safety equivalent to that, right? Um, but I think that's a, a terrific investment. And I uh, look forward to seeing how that will help to shape this narrative that we hope to stop talking about, right? We, we should get to a place where we have a zero suicide policy within the department. Yeah. Before I let you go, fill us in more, Alexa, on the plan that you're pushing for to address psychological issues among Chicago officers. Yeah, I mean, there's we have it's a very detailed plan. I'll I'll I'll, rec- I'll say a few things because I'm hoping that if our listeners are anybody in the helping profession that they start to do this. This is my charge for them. One of our recommendations was really basic. It's engage officers, families, and support people. You know, Sasha, you, you may and I may have talked about this before, but like I get to turn off the news, you have to read the news, right? And so right. you, you know, having this dialogue with your partner, your wife, your whatever about what do you want to know about my day? And what am I comfortable telling you and why? And I feel like I'm protecting you. And they're like, no, but I want to know about your day, right? So having this role play dialogue about how can we be vulnerable in front of each other? And also engaging the loved ones of the officer or of the helping profession. We do this with our staff here so that they can identify what burnout looks like, what changes in behaviors look like, signs and symptoms. It's not super obvious as we used to think it was so that they can better direct people to resources and learn how to have those messages. Another thing was to implement a wellness-focused app to improve transparency, a one-stop shop. I know that the FOP had an app, um, but so that everybody had access to this, where their general orders are, where resources are. We know that we are working with a young population who isn't as enthusiastic about reading emails or even going on the bulletin. So let's just make sure that whoever you are, however you want to consume information, you have access to it. So those were just a few of the more like programmatic recommendations that we had. That's Alexa James with NAMI Chicago. Alexa, thank you so much as always. My pleasure, Sasha. Thank you. And again, if you are someone that you know is struggling and needs support, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline number is now 988. You might have noticed that the National Suicide Hotline number is much shorter. Before, callers had to dial at least 10 digits, 800-273-8255. That number will still work, but experts are hoping the new 988 number will make it easier for people in a mental health crisis to get the support they need. Philip Martinez is a licensed clinical professional counselor and a board member of the Illinois chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. He's here with more. Mental health professionals are calling this a landmark moment. The federal government invested $432 million to launch this new crisis line. What are your thoughts on the new 988 number? 
Oh my gosh, it's huge. I mean, that number you just you just mentioned the 432 million. I mean, that that's an 18-fold increase this year that we're making this a national priority because I mean, it's not just COVID. It's 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 a trend that we've seen this last 20 years in mental health that uh, um, depression numbers are going up, uh, uh, avoidance numbers are going up, anxiety numbers are going up, I and mean, we just see that across the board. And, and obviously, that's been magnified with what we've been going on these last couple of years. So, 988 is something that that came uh, into mind well before this crisis level because we recognize that there was a need to create an inter- intervention outside of 911 that was specifically designed to address specific mental health needs. So this is, you know, beyond Mm -hmm. huge for us. So walk us through what actually happens when someone calls or texts 988. What information do they need to provide? What kind of questions are they being asked by the counselors? Well, I can walk you through real quick. Just like, for example, in a call, when you call 988, the first thing you're going to hear is a greeting. And it's going to be a message with a chance to press one for a veteran. Uh, crisis line because that's a very specific area that we need to address and is being specifically addressed here or two for Spanish and then you'll stay on the line we, I mean, this is a system it's in its infancy it, I mean, we just launched it on Saturday so right now this is what we're working with so then you'll stay on the line and your call is routed to what we hope is going to be a local lifeline network crisis center and I said what we hope because we only have uh, 200 of these crisis centers across the country right now, and a lot of this money is going to be going towards advocating and funding um, more crisis centers and individuals to staff these um, these facilities. But mm-hmm. um, then, uh, hopefully, what we hope is going to be a brief wait. But again, we can't promise that quite yet. But we do have people there in place. A trained crisis counselor will answer the phone, provide support, and share resources as needed. Uh, similar, when you text 988, you'll complete a short survey that'll let the crisis counselor know a little bit about your situation and then, be, again, be connected with a trained crisis counselor in one of the crisis centers uh, who will text, again, support and share resources mm-hmm. if needed. And there's also a third option, a chat line where you visit 988lifeline.org and find the chat button in the top right-hand corner of the screen and, again, complete a short survey letting us know, you know, where you're at, and, and then we direct you to, uh, again, a trained crisis counselor to help, you know, provide yeah. any support that they can. And Phil, you mentioned an important point there. There are more than 200 call centers around the country. Illinois has six, and Governor Pritzker's committed nearly $15 million to boost staffing at these centers. What are your thoughts? Talk more about this. That is definitely a need. I mean, like I said, you know, we, we just launched it. Obviously, the, the national uh, hotline has been in existence for several years, but we are expecting an increase in influx in numbers of calls that we receive with 988 as it's up and running because we are dealing, like I said, specifically with mental health issues, not just people in, in crisis or, or imminent uh, threat of suicide, but also issues uh, related to other mental health issues such as depression or anxiety or even substance abuse issues is something that we want to cover. So mm-hmm. um, being able to uh, expand those services, we know that that's going to increase the number of calls that are going to come through 988. And that we're, as, as that happens, obviously, we're going to need more staffing. We're going to need more resources available. We're going to need more people on the street. I mean, it's just going to be kind of a, a domino effect as we provide the service that is greatly needed 
there's there's going to be more uh, need for for as I said, other resources to provide to meet yeah. the, the expected need that we're going to see. There have been um, concerns about whether or not police will be sent to someone's home if they call mm-hmm. the suicide prevention hotline. You say the 988 number is not meant to be a replacement for 911. Talk about that. No, no. Yeah, exactly. We um, What we're hoping to do is that if we do reach a, um, a state where or a situation where we are using local police services or EMTs, we want to have them have trained personnel. And that's something that we're seeing a little more in the departments these days, personnel that are trained in mental health situations. But what ideally we would like to have in the future are crisis teams at you know, available to everyone in all locations that can be dispatched to deal with specific mental health needs so we can avoid situations which might lead to violence or even death. You mentioned this earlier, Phil. All the numbers are going up, anxiety, depression, especially now, right, during the the, the pandemic. So this this transition to the new number, it's coming at a crucial time. Are you hopeful that... Are you, are you hopeful that it'll help more people get the help that they need? Uh, very much so, Sasha. This is something that, you know, there, there are two big issues that we talk about when, when dealing specifically with suicide intervention, and it's about time and distance. And what we're going to do with 988, I mean, you mentioned it right at the beginning. You know, we're not going to be dialing 10 numbers anymore. It's going to be three digits, and, and we're going we're gonna to get you into the intervention because 911, it, it, and, and one of the biggest differences, well, and then there are so many, we could, we could spend a whole show on that. But, yeah. um, you know, 911 is the point of entry into the intervention. 988, in many cases, will be the intervention. You know, what we hope to do is, is right now we're looking at probably 80% of the calls that we receive on 988 will be able to be resolved without sending someone out or providing further, you know, on the street resources such as sending out a team of mental health professionals or, you know, getting them to um, an emergency room situation or something of that nature. Yeah. The service will remain available 24-7 and in Spanish, along with interpretation services in more than 150 languages. How important is that piece? That really is important because not only is it available or important to have it available in languages, but with the call centers, we're looking at localizing the calls obviously to the community so that we have people who are in place who are familiar with the communities and the people that they're dealing with because we find that there are so many vast cultural um, prohibitions keeping people of color for example uh, lbgtq community members keeping them from getting the resources that they need for whatever reason we want to be able to provide specific needs for the specific communities that we're dealing with. As we talked about, uh, Phil, you know, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, you guys strongly advocated for this new number. Tell us more about the work of this organization and how you got involved with the Illinois chapter. Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it's we, we do so much. Our, our, our three big keys that we look at are about education, research, and advocacy. And we believe those are three key components that we're very active in in the community. You know, like you said, we're we're a national organization, so you can find us in all fifty states. We recently have a chapter that started in Puerto Rico, so that there's there's no excuse to not be able to find us. 
Um, but we're very dedicated to that, you know, helping those that are affected by suicide. That's our mission statement, uh, to provide, like I said, the, whether it's the resources, um, support groups, information, education. Uh, we do talks. Uh, we, we are a prominent role on ca- college campuses. We're becoming mm-hmm. more of a role on high school campuses and community organizations and parent groups. Again, just to get the word out there. And, and one of our biggest uh, fundraisers is called Out of the Darkness. And the reason we call it that is because we want to bring depression and suicide out of the darkness and into the light. You know, so people can yeah. feel free to talk about these things without the stigma that's attached to it. I became personally involved with AFSP following uh, the loss of my cousin Mark to suicide back in 2004. Uh, he was yeah, somebody that I was very close to, and being a mental health professional at the time, I was, of course, shocked and rocked by, by his loss. Um, mm-hmm. But after seeing the devastation, that didn't just, just to myself but to my family and to the community at large, I felt like there must be some resource out there. There must be something, you know, to help, you know, because here I was, a mental health professional, feeling at a loss of how to support these people. And that's when I came across the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And I became involved with their Out of the Darkness Overnight Walk in Chicago back in 2005. And since then, have been a regular volunteer and, and have become so involved that I'd be joined uh, their board of directors uh, just a couple of years ago to be even more involved because this is such a passion for me, not just Mm -hmm. as a mental health professional, but as someone with lived experience who has gone through this myself. So when I talk to somebody who's gone through that, I know where they're coming from. Yeah, that's so important. You've got 25 years of, of the professional experience, right? You know, working in this mental health space. Before I let you go, Phil, talk about some common myths about mental health and about suicide that you think are important to just debunk once and for all. You know, Sasha, I'm so happy you asked me that because one of the most important ones, if I, if I leave you with anything in your audience with anything today, is that there, there's a myth that talking to somebody about suicide will increase their chances of taking their own life. That is a complete myth. When we want to talk to somebody about suicide, we need to be very direct. In other words, we're not going to ask somebody, are you thinking of hurting yourself? Because someone who is imminently suicidal, they're not thinking of hurting themselves. They're thinking about ending their life. To them, that is ending the pain. That is going to be a relief from the pain. So we need to be very direct, whether it's our loved one, our child, our parent, you know, anyone that we're concerned about. Are you thinking of killing yourself? Are you thinking of taking your own life? Are you contemplating suicide? Being as direct and honest as we can gives them the open opportunity to talk about something that they don't feel they can talk about out loud. So we need to be direct. We're not going to plant the seed. We're not going to put an idea that's not already there. We're going to reach out and get the help and meet them where they're at. That's Philip Martinez with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, Illinois. He's also a licensed clinical professional counselor. Thanks for your time, Phil. Thank you so much, Sasha. Thanks for all you do and uh, getting our message out there. That's all for today's reset. We're working on improving your listening experience here on the podcast, so please. Let us know what you thought by leaving a review and a rating. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.